Welcome to Looks Like New on KGNU's It's the Economy. I'm Nathan Schneider, a professor of media studies at the University of Colorado Boulder. This is a show that asks old questions about new technology. We join you on the fourth Thursday of every month on the Old Fashioned Radio, or you can listen online as a podcast. Looks Like New is a production of the Media Enterprise Design Lab at CU Boulder. This month, our guest is my friend and colleague, Sandra Rostovska. Uh, she's a scholar and filmmaker whose work explores how visual media influence institutional and legal decision-making. Um, together, we'll be exploring the question of which images count as evidence? Now, th- this is a, you know, such an important moment to be asking these questions. It's a time when we are haunted and mobilized by images. Uh, the, the images of the death of George Floyd have sent uh, uh, so many people across the country into the streets. Images have set cities on fire. They've showed white America once again, but in some ways more than ever, it almost feels like um, what our system is um, organized to blind it from, what kinds of images we um, aren't supposed to see. Uh, now, th- the stakes of these images are, are tremendous. And I, I, I think you know, in, in a moment like this, back to my days as a reporter in New York City, in New York City, um, when I'd meet with the activists who were involved in what was called Cop Watch, you know, recording police activity, um, it was uh, a kind of scrutiny like I'd never experienced. Um, there was always, when we'd come out of the meeting, a cop car down the street, you know, someone watching from the other block. There was always this presence, this following, this this um, anxiety that these people were carrying. Um, I thought of them too when um, Ramsey Orta, who recorded Eric Garner crying, I can't breathe in Staten Island, um, experienced persistent, uh, persistent police harassment afterward, ended up uh, in jail, uh, repeatedly arrested. Um, capturing these images is itself a risk, is itself a, um, a way of putting one's life and body uh, on the line. Um, I, I think also of, you know, experience here in Boulder where uh, a, a, a resident here of color who I, I know well was um, caught on camera in one of the early cases of, um, uh, of, of the use of, of police body cameras uh, encountering police. And um, some of the most important evidence, it seemed to me, in the case was excluded on uh, what again seemed to me an arbitrary technicality. Uh, so it, it it was just a, an experience of seeing somebody um, you know ultimately put in jail um, because of a decision that a judge made about which images are um, are, are admissible in court, what which is uh, images the jury uh, was allowed to see and which uh, it wasn't. Um, Yet at the same time, I had that perception. Um, but what did I really experience? What did did what I see constitute a reality in the images that were excluded? There, is the are the images that we see of George Floyd um, a reality? What are they? What are those images to us? What are they to us as a society? Is this technology, which is all the more widespread, the technology of visual recording, um, a bearer of truth? Now, uh, you know, I can't think of anybody, um, at least, you know, certainly in, in, in our community here, uh, you know, better equipped to talk about this than, 
than Sandra. She's an assistant professor of media studies with me at the University of Colorado Boulder. And um, she has been exploring these questions for, for many years, both as a scholar and a filmmaker. Now, Sandra, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for joining me tonight. Thank you so much, Nathan. It's such a pleasure to join you to talk about these questions. And thank you so much for introducing the importance of this topic so eloquently. Now, tell me, as somebody who has been following uh, the, the, you know, the trajectory of images through um, uh, over many years and through many different contexts internationally, going to the International Criminal Court, um, uh, working with um, uh, uh, so many, so many different kinds of cases. What do you see in this moment in the aftermath of the death of George Floyd? Um, does it remind you of anything you've seen before? Um, what, 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 what does this moment bring to mind? I mean, the most obvious thing that comes to mind is Rodney King. And I see this for a number of things. Um, we all know, or I guess I shouldn't assume because uh, age matters, but uh, among the older <laughs> among us, I guess, um, we remember um, what was a groundbreaking case at that time, right? In 1991, George Holiday um, woke up in the middle of the night from the balcony of his apartment in L.A., uh, saw something wrong or something bad happening, took his VHS camera at the time and took a video of police officer beating a black man. It felt very brutal. And that video is really uh, kind of the most well-known case that almost foresaw changes in the power of images uh, and images produced actually by civilians, by bystanders, by activists to tell important stories of injustice to the world. Um, it's legally, let, you know, let me kind of speak for a moment legally, until that point really motion picture evidence, and by that I mean film and video and different formats of video, were used in court, but they were oftentimes shot by professional authorities. And they were oftentimes produced for the purposes of a specific trial. So the public would not even have access to the kind of um, motion picture evidence that would appear in a court case. Um, these were whether, you know, professional lawyers, um, journalists, professional authorities, such as law enforcement, who were tasked with producing this evidence that was brought into the courtroom. Romney King was so important because it really precipitated in shift in the kind of evidence courts would have to deal with moving forward. Because that's the most well-known public case where we, saw, we all saw injustice on television at the time. And we all felt that something was awfully wrong. Um, massive protests happened at that time too. The video was brought to evidence. And at that point in time, there was almost like an optimism that if you have this on video, then everybody in the courtroom would see for itself and, you know, justice would be served. So much that actually the prosecutors who were, uh, you know, going after the police officers who were beating um, Rodney King brutally, 
they almost did not even talk about the video much other than saying that the video speaks for itself. Now, at that point in time, the defense used and abused that because what they tried to do is to say, no, no, we should all be wary of images. Images never speak for itself. What's before, what's after, etc. And now on surface value, that seems true, right? Because there is always some kind of uncertainty with every image. It's, it's true that an image makes us ask questions and some of the, those questions we ask with the image and some of those we have to go outside the image. But the defense abused that moment to run a very sophisticated video forensic analysis in the courtroom where they slow down the video and they not only try to say the video is not showing what you think it's showing, they also managed to somehow say that actually the video is showing proper police conduct, police officers are trained to deal with a situation like this, and it led to, um, you know, the, the, this officer being let go free in the first trial. So there had to be, and that's what led to further riots on the streets in Los Angeles, right? Everybody is like, you cannot tell us that what we're seeing is not true. You just cannot tell us. And when you couple the fact that this is a black man and we have so much history of racial violence, uh, injustice, um, you know, racist policies that have shaped, you know, law enforcement units in this country, in LA as well, that people went on the street. They, they, they couldn't believe what was happening. The officers eventually were found guilty at the second trial, but the, the videotape was shot in 91. We had to wait until 93 for that kind of outcome. And also just because you do eventually the right thing, it doesn't mean we've changed much. So I bring this case because fast forward to 2020, and I wonder what has changed. And I want to bring something, you know, in preparation for our talk, I actually looked up the legal case uh, surrounding um, uh, uh, Floyd, George Floyd um, and compared it to Rodney King. And here are a few interesting things, you know, in the uh, uh, prosecutor's complaint, this is kind of preliminary summary of evidence that the prosecutors had to submit um, before we go to trial, right? And um, prosecutors in the United States need to disclose any evidence, even if it is to help the defense, right? You cannot hide the evidence. You have to put it all out there because in this country, we have constitutional requirements for due trial process. We like that, right? We need to respect that. But if we look at the complaint, First, they only charge one of the officers, not all of them. They only charge the officer initially, initially, this changed now, but initially they charge him with a third degree murder. What a third degree murder means, you only need to prove that the police officer act recklessly and dangerously. You don't have to show there was an intent to kill, that he intentionally killed the person, etc. So it's, you know, you're letting him go in a way legally because we all saw the video we all saw him kneeling there for eight minutes 42 seconds with the man begging don't kill me please i can't breathe mama all of that those words that george floyd 
articulated that made us all horrified by what was happening were excluded from the initial summary. So there's only third degree murder. Those words are not there. Another particular thing that happens uh, is that the prosecutor mentions not just you know how tall Floyd was, but also that he was over 200 pounds. Okay, peculiar case. Why? I wonder how much they do this for white men. And I wonder because we know that racial stereotypes, at least in this country, think about black men as kind of big, restless, that somehow, you know, these are unruly bodies that police officers really have to struggle with. This is exactly what was happening with Rodney King. In the courtroom, the defense argued, Rodney King is a big man, you know, like he would stand up and he can fight us back. So we all had to hold him, etc. From, you know, the perspective of like an actual humanistic analysis, we know how much racial bias was implicated in those statements and how that really played to the psyche of, you know, American public that thinks in particular way about race, etc. And to see that happening in the summary of the, pros of the prosecutor's summary in George Floyd initially, I was really horrified because I was like, what has changed? People have been riding on the streets. People have been protesting about this for a very long time. None of this is new. And if you read this initial thing, it feels like, yeah, we haven't learned much. And yet the, the protests kind of change the reality. The protests yes. start to change the meaning of the, of the images, right? And that's where I was going next. I think we've reached a saturation point, which only got amplified by the fact that people have been so stressed experiencing a global pandemic, losing jobs, being insecure financially, being insecure with their health, that it really felt like I've had enough, right? The most powerful tool of protest is the human body. When you're really willing to risk your own life, your own body, to put yourself on the line, and I said, I had it enough. I no longer care because what's happening is just too much. So what I think since Rodney King until now, in 30 years, what we've tried to achieve is really this point where it's not just a certain segment of the population protesting and rioting and raising their concern, where actually everybody is on the street and also public opinion for the first time has changed about this as opposed to rodney king uh, where um, really split opinion about what happened and whether that was justified or not majority of americans independent of party lines actually believe that the officer killed george floyd and they need to be held accountable so to me that's the light of hope right and also the protests in my opinion really started changing a lot of things already because what was not happening you know and i i go back 30 years but we can even go back to eric gardner eric gardner was just as horrified video with eric gardner saying i can't breathe i can't breathe and the officers don't give a damn and the only person that you know faced legal harassment so to say was the you know the guy who shot the video as you mentioned that was outrageous and that was only 2014 right
Well, and 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 so there are there there are these multiple amplifications. I mean, I mean the same words being repeated. I can't breathe. Um, but then also the the ability of the current moment to draw on the the kind of movement power that was built before, you know, to, to, to build on organizations that had been formed and networks that had been formed. Um, the, the message was ready. The, um, the organizers were ready. You know, this had been building. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, no movement just comes out of nowhere. And this has been going on for a long time. And, you know, also even just on the local level, I mean, if you think about it, and now the Department of Human Rights in uh, Minnesota is actually doing an investigation into the police department in Minneapolis for the last decade, trying to see whether there is a pattern in um, unfair targeting of uh, minorities. So that's a huge step. Uh, we know that the FBI has started um, civil rights investigation into the matters. Without the FBI disclosing the investigation, we wouldn't know much about what it is and what it entails. But I'm hopeful, you know, that's a positive change. And we're already seeing police departments in certain cities trying actively uh, to implement some new policies to reform, etc. So what's happening gives me hope that I see among the people and on the street. And as you said, to know that all of that organizing that has been going on for a long time, you know, it's finally seeing some change. And I am very hopeful by the fact that in a time when we live in, you know, uh, active, I guess, polarized times, you know, where it's almost difficult to have any kind of politically challenging conversation because people go to the extremes or whatever it is that they believe in. The fact that in this moment we've managed majority of Americans to agree that what was done here was wrong gives me hopes for the future. You're listening to Looks Like New. We're speaking with Sandra Rostovska on uh, which images count as evidence. Stick with us and we'll be right back. Listener members have made it possible for KGNU to expand coverage of COVID-19 to include the launch of our new Spanish language news service on news.kgnu.org. Check it out and tell your friends. Go to news.kgnu.org. Los miembros escuchantes han posibilitado que KGNU expanda la cobertura del coronavirus para incluir el lanzamiento de nuestro nuevo servicio de noticias en español en news.kgnu.org. Escúchelo y cuénteles a sus amigos. Vaya a news.kgnu.org. Welcome back to Looks Like New on KGNU Radio, a show that asks old questions about new tech. Uh, in that spirit, we're talking today with Sandra Rostovska, scholar and filmmaker uh, in, uh, in the Department of Media Studies at the University of Colorado Boulder uh, with me. And uh, we're talking about uh, images. Now, we've, we've, we started out uh, exploring, you know, the the nature of the images of the death of George Floyd and the the uprising that has emerged from them. But I, I want to step back a little bit and draw on um, uh, on on Sandra's you know broader experience uh, working internationally around these issues and um, and and over many years. Sandra, when did you first encounter the power of images in public life? When did this question first arise to you as something that, that matters? 
So this is actually a very personal story because I, I'm originally from Macedonia. I was born in a country that right now exists as a museum in Belgrade. I was born in the former Yugoslavia. My childhood, my upbringing uh, was marked by um, the wars, then the civil war that really tore apart that country. And so growing up, I would watch, uh, you know, my, I would, it was a state-run television, right? It's a different system. And so you would have cartoons in the evening before bedtime. You watch the cartoons and your parents tell you, okay, now it's time for you to go to bed. Unfortunately, you had breaking news all the time because of the war happening. So my cartoon would always be cut short with some breaking news from the region. Uh, you know, as a young person, you don't understand what's going on. You don't understand what the, the news anchors are talking about. You certainly don't understand why your parents are concerned. But you do see images of something that doesn't feel right. That you do see images of something that makes you sad. And then you see your parents crying, concerned, like talking. And so to me, this was really the time that I, you know, I, I, I say that... The, yeah, probably that left a big mark on me um, growing up the way they did and just connecting to images before even being able to articulate what that means. You know, it took a long time for these things to click professionally, but really that was when I started liking the visual language, so to say, or understanding it has power. And, um, you know, from there I moved to, uh, you know, being interested eventually in filmmaking because I was interested in telling stories about the former Yugoslavia and the Balkans in generally that were not being told. Because when you grow up in a region that was marked by war that everybody watched, um, then you know, if you're a filmmaker from the region and you try to sell your film to international markets, if you try to distribute it to international film festivals, they want to see the Balkan story. And the Balkan story in their mind is tell us something about the war. Well, that's fine. That's a powerful, that's an important story. But to me, also untold stories were, you know, my mother calling her friends in Serbia during the NATO bombing in the late 90s. And they say, like, oh, we're baking pies. We're trying to bake as many as possible because the bombing is going to start. So we have to go to shelter. You know, people find a way to live lives through horrible circumstances. Um, and, you know, for better or worse, we remain human, right? We like cooking. We like eating. We like singing. We'll, we enjoy all of those things. And it took a long time for me to start actually studying this and to realize that what I was observing in the Balkans is not particular to the Balkans. I mean, Are, were rights... there particular images in that in that period that had this kind of a kind of central contested quality to them? Were, were images mobilizing people at that time, or or was this a, a kind of different a different moment? So, in terms of the Yugoslav wars. Um, it's a war, so you, 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 you're only, the only thing you can do is to survive. So you're watching without necessarily knowing what's happening and, um, you know, different sides of the conflict where you're talking about Croatia, Serbia, Bosnia, etc. were, you know, running their own images and, um, you know, people were vastly misinformed. Uh, what was... Um, were there powerful images? Yes, of course there were. I mean, for example, um, something that 
you know, people from that region remember vividly is watching the student protests in the early 90s on television at home. Uh, these were protests for free speech run by students in downtown Belgrade, massively attended. And, you know, uh, Serbian President Milosevic decides to call on the military to dismantle the protest and use that as a way because the moment he got to declare a state of emergency to send the military to deal with the protests, he gave himself the power to go into war with, you know, Slovenia, Croatia, Bosnia. So those are very powerful images that, you know, are still vividly remembered. What was happening afterwards, right, after, after you're processing through this and dealing with this, then was the, you know, the protests and the movement and organizing to get Milosevic out of office, right? And so that was a different era. Um, all of this plays out. And then, uh, you know, as the court in uh, the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia starts being publicized and some of these videos are being shared, um, it's not that they had easy, um, not that they easily mobilize people, because again, with images, sometimes what we believe is what we see. It's not the other way around. And so if you believe that you're a party in the conflict that was done wrong by the other side, you can spin any image and any story in whatever way you want, right? And so that was then the, the kind of the next moment in trying to deal with the images. The court is showing images. They're being used as evidence. Um, you know, uh, the Yugoslavia tribunal had 161 individuals indicted and uh, 90 of those were sentenced. So, and this is, you know, the court work from 90... Um, three until 2017. So we're talking about a long period of time. All of that is available for the public. All of that evidence is now archived. People can research, can look into. And despite all of that, there's still not consensus about what happened. Um, and the path towards reconciliation, towards transitional justice in the region is far from being clear. So yes, there were very powerful images, but I don't know that their impact was uh, as, 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 I guess, as important as would like it to be. Now, that is not to diminish it because it was still there and it still made a difference. But images always need us, right? Like if we don't demand stuff that images are showing us, if we don't work with the images, an image in and of itself can't do anything. And so how, how did the court read that, that experience, that conflict, um, through the lens of those of those images, what did it allow it to, itself to see or not see? Um, where were the lines drawn in that in that Yugoslavia tribunal? How did that feel reliving something that you lived through um, uh, uh, through the the eyes of that tribunal? In terms of me personally, I guess when you see a humanity in a video in the most inhumane circumstances, stays with you. And I think this is why actually even a video like the one we saw with the killing of George Floyd remains with us. So in the context of the former Yugoslavia, the video that I cannot unsee, and it's not just about what I saw, but it's the combination of the sound and image, um, is actually a video shot by the paramilitary uh, unit Scorpio with the execution of uh, boys and men in Srebrenica. They're taken out of a truck order to lay on the ground. We have paramilitary armed individuals and one of the men 
pleads you know it's just trying to to plead the the, the the armed person but but sir please please when you hear that like it's it, it just stays with you because it really tells you how inhumane can people be you know how inhumane can all of us be to be able to harm to kill a human being who's right there in front of you pleading for his life that's exactly what happened with george floyd he's pleading for his life please i can't breathe and and so i you know that's i guess what connects us as human beings and when you see that when you see that kind of humanity stripped away you can't just be at least i think if you are a decent human being you cannot stay there and just be a voyeur like something in you breaks and you really uh, one feel powerless in the name of injustice but two you really really want something to be done and here is where courts they don't they can't do everything for us they can't but there is some kind of it can bring some kind of i don't know what is it like reconciliation or calmness by the fact knowing that justice was served okay you know there is a court that set the record straight and indicted this individual so that was powerful to see in the former yugoslavia i mean i observed the trial of um uh uh, Ratko Mladic, who was very high-ranking official, who was charged with um, a lot of things that happened in the region, and the former president of Republika Srpska, Radovan Karadzic. I was at one of his status conferences there, and that was also a bizarre experience because the status conference is just kind of checking the trial has ended, and there, you know, there, there, there are certain things happening, and he was trying to explain to the judges how his blood sugar has gone bad since he's been uh, detained because he's only eating eating um, you know uh, microwaved food and that's inappropriate for his diet and he's giving them lecture on like he sounds like a you know like a hippie there uh, teaching the court about healthy food <laughs> and you know and diet and I'm sitting on the other end it's like I can't believe what I'm just seeing so there were like several layers of things that quite shocked me about that tribunal. Is, is there a way in which, you know, I, I mean, I, I, I'm thinking of the calls, you know, to defund the police, to radically rethink the, the you know, ju justice system mm -hmm. right now. Um, you know, the, a lot of conversation in response to that around things like restorative justice, around alternative programs for you know, how do we deal with these problems that um, police are being used to deal with? Um, and, uh, and you know, I wonder if there's some respect in which, like, the court of the, um, you know, that we've inherited from from uh, eras gone past, you know, of, of, of that we've inherited from our past, just are in some ways inadequate to address the kind of the needs of justice of this media moment. You know, is there is there another kind of, you know, there's always been this kind of idiom of the court of public opinion. Um, but is there a kind of, do, do these media demand, you know, a different kind of justice where, where a, you know, a kind of viral justice that's able to respond to the, you know, the viral media? I mean, we, we are media studies professors, right? So we read theorists. Uh, a theorist by the name of, um, you know, Jack Derrida argues that justice is the experience of the impossible. Right. So justice is different from the law. The law can be limited 
the law can also actively promote politics of exclusion. We know that in this country particularly well. So we should not always, we should not kind of uh, um, made the two be uh, synonymous to each other, right? Justice is not always the court. Justice is not always the law. Um, the law can be a vehicle of justice and that an important vehicle of justice for that matter. So we do need to insist on better laws, on better protections in the court, because at the end of the day, that what can give us some security as people living in this world, people living in this country. But court justice is not enough. It's never enough. And I think this is what is happening in this moment. It's not just about you know, what the outcome in the court is going to be like in the case of George Floyd or in the other cases that we've seen and we keep seeing. You know, it's also about changing the public narrative, changing public perception about what's happening. It's about finally making people to pay attention. It's finally demanding and being heard about police reform. Police reforms is nothing new. People have been talking about that in this country for a long time. Reforms in the criminal justice system have been, you know, called for by various people, various groups for a very long time. But finally, people are paying attention to that. And that is very important. And again, we need to do a lot. Justice in the courtroom is just one step of what it means to live in a just society that respects every single individual, irrespective of their markers of identity, among which race is a very important one. Yeah, that, I mean, that, that what you say about attention, I think, is so is so powerful, right? It, it, and attention is such an important currency in a moment, you know, uh, we see this, you know, caricatured in the presidency where attention is such a is such a um, important part of how power is exercised today. And, um, and, and, you know, the court is kind of established, uh, you know, it has all these, these metaphors of attention around them, you know, the hearing, the, um, uh, uh, you know, that, that over and over the, the court is supposed to be a place where, uh, where people can be heard, where, where people have a voice, where, uh, uh, ordinary people are the jurors. And, and so there's this, there are all these metaphors of attention yet today in our attention landscape, there is a, a, a need for a different kind of attention for justice to be felt. Um, the attention of, you know, of, of the conversation such as it is, you know, and, and, um, and you, and, and that, that feeling of being heard, which is so universal and, and which, you know, the court structures in some part were probably designed to, you know, to, to, to respond to. Now we are responding to that with, with, um, you know, through our media in, in, in some way. And, and I, you know, I'm curious again about, you know, these protests have started spreading beyond the United States, right? Beyond the context of, of you know, the U.S.'s particular, um, uh, you know, deep, deep, um, uh, you know, kind of original sins of, of, um, of racial injustice. And, and, you know, I'm curious, especially as someone who, um, you know, was born and grew up outside the United States, and, and, and particularly as someone who has studied human rights crises, you know, around the world, um, you know, how much does what's happening here resonate broadly? How much is it something that is particular to, to the, the context of this country? Um, what are people outside of the U.S. hearing, do you think? Um, what are they seeing in these images? 
so it's it's an important question and you know i've always said that us talks about race but class almost never exists and europe talks about class but race almost never exists in those conversation and um i think what the protests in the us are showing to the rest of the world and inspiring people around the world to do is to for for them to also you know show how these things plays out in their in in, in their universe and to have a, a broader platform to do so because you know in them when we think about a democracy and when we think about democratic theories we've talked a lot about the importance of voices right raising your voice uh, contribute to different kinds of people to have a voice now if you look about if you purely think about voice uh, marginalized communities people of color have had voice in that regard because they've been producing images of the injustice that has been happening to them for a very long time. But voice comes to the ability to listen, which is what you were saying just before, right? And I think it's very important point that you brought up because it's not just about listening in the courtroom, it's about listening more broadly. What's happening in this moment, I think it's not just that we are seeing voices being articulated, voices talking about injustice, voices have been talking about injustice in the US and the rest of the world for a very long time. Now is the moment that for whatever reason, the broader public listens, not just in the US, but also in the UK, also in the rest of the Europe. Uh, the most paradoxical example to me is the Netherlands. The Netherlands hosts many of the international courts, tribunals, this system of justice that we stand by, we venerate, we think they're important milestone in the fight for human rights and human dignity in the world. And yet the Netherlands has been probably the least capable of the Western democracies to deal with its own legacies of imperialism, to deal with its own legacy of racism to the point where when there was once protest in Hague about colonial brutalities and racism, you know, nobody even covered that. Nobody even covered that. And so, um, you know, we, uh, uh, there was, at, uh, you know, in the early um, 20th century, way before human rights became embedded in the law, way before the Universal Declaration of Human Rights were crafted, there was actually a Belgian king who committed horrible crimes in the Congo. And that's when people used the term crimes against humanity for the first time. It was not a legal term. It did not mean anything in a court of law, but it meant something in the historical moment as to what was happening, as to how people were starting to think about human dignity. And, um, you know, that was a horrible crime, mutilation of bodies, death of people, etc done against black bodies and we finally have so we're not just dealing with confederate statues in the u.s we have statues of people who've done racial injustice around the world in many different parts of the world and we finally have people taking down statue of you know king leopold ii we have finally australia renaming its mountain range from you know this king to something else which means it's not, I, I don't want to think about, you know, US setting any kind of precedent, but I think what's, what maybe is happening, I, I cannot speak about this scientifically, but I think 
the corona pandemic brought us closer together as humanity because we're all facing an invisible enemy together and we all had to do similar things right we all had to stay at home wear masks try to social distance you know try to be kind etc so in a way it somehow brought us together as people around the world you could see us connecting with the experiences around other parts of the world and i think somehow somehow somewhere there that plays out in the massive protests in about racial injustice happening around the world because no country is saying oh it's safer to stay at home right i mean that's the most powerful thing that people are saying i'll try to be as safe as i possibly can i'll wear a mask i keep a distance but i'm going on the street because the protest matters had they not yeah. yeah and for that to be happening in the uk in france that's powerful you know it's not just people in the u.s saying i've had enough it's people everywhere saying i've had enough in the midst of a global pandemic yeah and it's it's um you know even the language of human rights is something that the u.s has historically resisted as a kind of exceptional quality of our exceptionalism right um you know one of the leaders who who has used that language of human rights it was Malcolm X. And this was someone who was kind of excluded from the, the discourse and continues to be excluded from, you know, the mainstream story about, about, you know, our language of civil rights and, and this sort of thing. So there's this, you know, linguistic resistance to, to having a kind of shared, um, a shared problem with other, other parts of the world. Yeah, because you know what, in the US, human rights happen around the world, never at home. Right. Human rights violations happen in the rest of the world. And so human rights has been um, the language of US, U.S. foreign policy since the Carter administration. But U.S. has never used that language to deal with issues domestically. Now, what is human rights? You know, human rights says that the life and dignity of every human being happen and encompasses a broad framework of civil rights, of cultural rights, of social rights, economic rights, right? So it's a very broad, all-encompassing language in a way. It's a moral grammar for justice in the world that says the dignity of every human being matters. And then for, for, to be, for kind of injustice to be called human rights, you have to show a pattern, right? This cannot be one single isolated incident. It needs to be systemic. I mean, what is more systemic than racial injustice? You know, what is more systemic than state violence against black people, men and women, because we forget the black women oftentimes from conversations, right? I want to mention Breonna Taylor, you know, also happening at the same time as the George Floyd video. So what's more, you know, systemic than that? And so why are we resisting the language of human rights? You know, I, I, it, it's an important question. I don't have an answer to. But I also well, it's, think it's an that... exposure. It, it's an exposure. I mean, a, another place where I've seen activists, you know, in this case, again, black women who were um, being shadowed by the police everywhere they went was um, uh, Detroit during the uh, during and after the, the water crisis there, uh, uh, where where um, uh, people were bringing in U.N. Uh, officials to observe the human rights crisis of, of this water crisis. So. Uh, it, it, and it was it was the danger, the amount of danger uh, that people were exposing themselves to by raising the language of human rights in the United States was just amazing to see. But I also want to add something, you know, if we think about the major global human rights organizations that operate in Western countries, 
Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International are the two largest. They're most well-funded. Uh, you know, they started out as very underdog, grassroots kind of organization. They're mainstream organization with millions and millions of dollars of budgets. They only recently started started to use the language of human rights for things happening domestically. They've only recently started to thinking about, you know, state violence against black people in the UK or the United States as human rights. So this is not just about the politicians, you know, and the different administration on both sides of the political spectrum. It's also about the major human rights organizations that have been more comfortable to look for rights violation elsewhere and not at home. And what has changed now is that now they're all paying attention at home as well. Human Rights Watch, it's paying attention to what's happening. You know, smaller organizations like Witness now have programming for police violence in the United States. That was not the case before. And Witness was founded. The founding story for Witness is the Rodney King incident. And yet it took them, you know, decades before they started paying attention to this issue at home. So I'm hopeful that things are starting to change. But also, it doesn't matter how we call it at the end of the day, if we pay attention and we rectify the injustice that was done, if we find a way to build a better society, that's what we're all about. You're listening to Looks Like New on KGNU Radio. We're speaking with Sandra Rostovska about which images count as evidence. Coverage of breaking news is made possible by KGNU members. One way to help us bring you this coverage is by donating a vehicle you no longer need. Learn more at KGNU.org or call 1-844-KGNU-CAR. Welcome back to Looks Like New on KGNU Radio, a show that asks old questions about new tech. This month, we're speaking with Sandra Rostovska, a scholar and filmmaker whose work explores how visual media uh, influence institutional and legal decision making. We're talking about um, the images that have been mobilizing people across the United States and around the world of police uh, violence and, and racial injustice. Um, Sandra, a lot of your work focuses on this legal context of images in courts. And um, I, I want to turn to the question of, of policy. You know, there's a lot of discussion right now about, on, on the one hand, um, demands to defund the police. On the other hand, um, uh, what seem like uh, reforms uh, aimed at, at increasing police uh, accountability, better record keeping, um, more body cameras. What kinds of policies do you think, based on what you've seen internationally, uh, do we need to take images seriously in our courts of law? I mean, first of all, um, a lot of legal scholars agree that right now images uh, are really an afterthought in the law. So legal systems in the U.S. by and large say images only demonstrate what witnesses say. And that means that images are only illustrative evidence. But with the mass proliferation of images of all kinds, you know, whether it's citizen footage, whether it's surveillance footage, whether it's body camera, dash camera footage, whatever it is that we're talking about, we have far more images that are infiltrating the law everywhere. And the law has no standards for how to deal with them, at least not consistent standards. I mean, we still don't know in, in courts well, actually, let me backtrack. U.S. courts don't archive visual evidence. 
So as a researcher who wants to study the use of visual evidence in U.S. courts, you cannot find this archive. It doesn't exist. You have to try to do court requests. You have to try to go to the lawyers, etc., etc. U.S. courts archive all kinds of evidence, not the visual evidence. And yet visual evidence is very powerful and it's used as evidence. So why don't you archive? So that's number one. Number two, images, because their lack of standards and lack of understanding, nobody teaches, you know, visual evidence in evidence curricula around the country. Uh, you know, uh, law students are not trained in visual arguments. Um, lawyers, judges, juries don't go through any training with images, which means they're left to what they perceive to be intuitive ways of seeing. Well, intuitive ways of seeing everything we know from visual communication research is never intuitive, right? How we see and what we see is shaped by cognitive processing, cultural indicators, uh, you know, um, social indicators, all sorts of factors. We know that, you know, who we are, markers of identity, race, gender, class, all of that shapes what we see and how we see, who we identify with in a video, all of that matters. Which is all to say, none of this is intuitive. But when you don't have standards, what U.S. courts think is like, okay, images are either transparent, everything you need to know is already in the image, or images are so opaque that we're not going to spend any time interpreting what's in the image. The result, a lot of bad law. I mean, the most famous example that I like to use with my students that, you know, legal scholars are very well familiar with is a case from the mid-2000s, a U.S. Supreme Court case called Scott versus Harris, where what was at stake was whether police officers, um, uh, a police car chase actually violated the defendant's uh, constitutional rights, Fourth Amendment case. Um, the person is black, the officers are white, this is happening in Georgia. Um, one car chases after the guy, then another car joins, um, uh, the, 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 you know, the uh, black man drives, eventually crashes the cars, ends up being paralyzed. He is saying that this was an unwarranted seizure. Police officers saying, no, we did nothing wrong. The Supreme Court rules eight to one in favor of the officers. What do they say at the end? The video speaks for itself. They're so convinced they post the video on the Supreme Court website, inviting the American public, see, you can watch for yourself. On top of that, during the oral arguments, they're saying, this video reminds me of the most frightening Hollywood car chase. It's like the French Connection movie. You never hear Supreme Court justice in this country ever talk about any kind of evidence with references to popular culture the way they did to the video. And, you know, so why is it that we don't have a legal language to deal with visual evidence? You know, though the Supreme Court rule 8 to 1, social psychologists at Harvard took the court's invitation to heart and say, okay, the video speaks for itself, let's test this. And they run experiments with people and what they found out no, the video does not speak for itself. And actually, depending on who you are, your culture, your race, your political leanings, etc., you know, shapes what you see in that video. Not every American sees the same thing in the video. But when you publicly make a statement like the video speaks for itself, everybody would see this. 
you are unnecessarily taking away the legitimacy of the law because those people who do not see what you see there feel like the law is not there to protect themselves black people often find themselves in this position so rather than having ad hoc measures popular culture reference shape how we assess video as evidence in u.s courts can we start taking images seriously so that we're coming up with standards as to how to deal with them u.s courts are so you know peculiar about text that for written documents their standards about citation their standards about font their standards about footnotes for images no such standards nothing exists the law spends so much time interpreting all kinds of evidence right it's all about the interpretation of evidence and yet for images well, there's interpretation if it suits the party, right? But that's what I'm saying. It's ad hoc. You know, images cannot be transparent and opaque all at the same time. Are there, are there that, other places where we have examples of how to do this differently? I, I don't think we have good examples of how to do this. Because let me tell you something. So the International Criminal Court and the Yugoslavia Tribunal actually use evidence, visual evidence extensively. But these courts combine what we call the common law and the civil law tradition. Judges come from everywhere in the world, so there's no one legal tradition that shapes that. And they don't have juries. Everything happens with the judges. And so what's happening there is you present all the evidence... And then you don't know how the evidence is going to be weighted at the end. And that assessment is not written down. So, you know, some scholars who've actually worked in the courts are saying, you know, this happens in the judges' heads, not on paper. So those courts also need better rules so we know what's happening. Now, those courts are actually working on better rules. The International Criminal Court has set up a, a, something which is called the Technology Advisory Board a board of consultants and experts who work with this kind of evidence to guide the court and judiciary of better standards for how to work with new forms of evidence, open source evidence, and, you know, video and visuals are part of open source evidence today. So at least they're trying to figure out what to do. I have not seen something like that happening in the U.S. yet, though more and more scholars are talking about that. And law schools around the country are slowly, some of them, becoming more aware of these things. Uh, but very few law schools in this country teach images as part of evidence classes or as part of any of the standard classes. So the point here is that we have a lot of visual communication research we, that talks about you know, how we perceive, interpret, and understand images. There's a lot of social psychology research on this matter. It's about time for courts to start looking into that and doing something about it. It has to start with legal training in, you know, law schools, but, you know, some social psychologists are actually arguing for legal training for juries for the evidence as well, because... You know, they're all they're testing all sorts of things as to how you play video, who introduces a video, who is the first party to introduce the video and how that shapes the decision making on the part of the juries. And we know the results are not good. So we need to start doing something about that. And I think that's why this moment is also a good moment to raise the discussion about court standards for visual evidence because visual evidence is everywhere making us aware of injustices in the world not just in the u.s and all courts of law have to do better with figuring out how they include and exclude 
evidence in a way that it's consistent, in a way that makes sense, how they present evidence, um, how they assess evidence, and what way is given on visual evidence based on what standards and criteria, so that this is not ad hoc. Finally, I just, you know, in the sense that we are all juries in these kinds of in these kinds of um, issues and in these kinds of viral um, uh, images, how would you train us? You know, how, what advice would you give us as we interpret the video, the kind of onslaught of video evidence that we're receiving and the kind of uh, especially in, in such a polarized society? What what should we be doing with this evidence? Ask more questions, genuinely. Don't assume you know everything there is to know in a video. Like, watch it with some kind of skepticism, but not in the sense skepticism, oh, nothing is happening. Okay, my eyes don't lie. Something is awfully wrong here. That much I can be certain. And then start asking questions, right? So take George Floyd. Okay, we know eight minutes and 43 seconds, somebody is kneeling on a person. The person is pleading for his life. You know a whole lot, and you are really prepared to ask very smart questions about it. So don't be afraid to ask those questions. Okay, what does the forensic report says? Okay, the first forensic report is inconsistent with the independent forensic report, autopsy report, I'm sorry, that the family of George Floyd asked. Start asking questions. What I see in the video, you know, is that there is an intentional murder here, right? Second degree murder. Um, the first report, uh, autopsy report doesn't show that, but the independent one shows it. Start asking more questions, right? It's like, keep asking questions. Images give us fantastic opportunity to keep asking questions. And it's on us to keep asking those questions. And if we develop this kind of habit of asking more questions with images, I think we're also prepared to deal with even falsely manipulated images, you know? Like, don't assume images are trans so transparent or so opaque, there's no way to deal with it or you know everything about them. No, assume that every image allows you to ask questions and start asking those questions and start seeking for those answers. Thank you, Sandra. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you. This was a pleasure to be here and to talk to you. You've been listening to Looks Like New on KGNU Radio, a show that asks old questions about new tech. We've been speaking with Sandra Rostovska, a scholar and filmmaker who's a professor uh, along with me at the uh, Department of Media Studies at the University of Colorado Boulder. I'm Nathan Schneider, and Looks Like New is a production of CU's Media Enterprise Design Lab. You can find out more about our work at colorado.edu slash lab slash medlab. If you've uh, enjoyed this show, please spread the word and uh, consider leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts. I'd love to hear from you as well with, with comments and suggestions of guests and topics. You can reach me at medlab at colorado.edu. I hope you'll join us next month. <laughs>